Well, may I add my own welcome to Paul's. It's really brilliant to see you all this evening. As Paul said, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. So if you are new amongst us here tonight, or if you're one of our regulars, it's really great to see you all. And as Paul said, we are going to be starting a new series in our Sunday evenings. For the next 10 weeks, we are going to be doing a topical series, looking at the attributes of God. Now, simply put, the attributes of God are the things that we say about God which make him who he is. I'm tempted to say that they are personality traits, but they are much, much more than that. It's everything about his character and his work and his essence that makes him who he is. Everything that he possesses, And because he possesses them, he also defines those things. And so between now and Christmas, uh, we're going to be looking at a few of those attributes, not all of them by any stretch of the imagination, but hopefully by Christmas we will have all learnt a few things about who God is and developed an understanding of theology which is absolutely Christ-centred. But why is it important that we have a Christ-centered approach on the attributes of God? Why is it important that we have a Christ-centered focus when we look at the doctrine of God? I mean, can't Jesus wait until we have a series on the person of Christ or the incarnation or something like that? Well, let me explain. Let me tell you a story. Something happened um, earlier this week. I was talking to... Uh, someone else in our church family here at Hollywell, and we were talking about various things, and it got to the point where we were talking about what we were reading and what we were listening to. And she told me that she had recently enjoyed a biography about Michelle Obama, the the wife of a former president of the United States of America. Now, here is the thing. You can do research on Michelle Obama. You can read books about her listen to her speeches or listen to people talk about her on podcasts. But by those things, you cannot know her in any real or genuine sense. She remains distant, just words on a page, an amalgamation of pixels, a pattern of sound waves. She hasn't become personal. She hasn't exactly invited our church family friends to the Oval Office to have brandy snaps, coffee and cake and have deep and meaningful conversations. And the reason why I bring this up is because what we are wanting to do in this series is provide you with more than just a biography of who God is. Myself and Joseph, who will be taking you through the series, you know, we could easily provide you with cold and sterile facts about God, you know, an angular doctrinal statement which you could piece together in the abstracts that you might be able to score slightly higher in a theology exam. And if you want one of those, come and get me and I'll give you one. But that is not our purpose. If that is all we achieve in our series, then we would have 100% failed in our objectives. We want this series to be vivid, passionate, and buoyant, and to lead all of us into a greater, deeper, richer worship of our God. Because you have encountered the living God through his word and by his spirit. And for that, we need Jesus. 
We need Jesus to be front and centre. It says in John's Gospel that Jesus is the one who has come from the Father and whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father. Jesus is the one who, you know, he prevents the Bible from being just another biography. Jesus is the one who ensures that when we open the Bible, we don't open a static word, but a living word. And if we want to know God better, then the only, the only hope for us is to know Jesus better through the work of his spirit. One Christian writer, Mark Jones, he puts it like this. Listen to what he says. Apart from Christ, the attributes of God remain meaningless to us. In Christ alone, we can understand the true and living God. And any study of God's attributes is true only when it comes with a connection to his son. Another author, Thomas Goodwin, he writes this. There is a glorious image of all God's attributes which shines in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you see the point of what these two authors are trying to say to us? They are saying that we can only know God through Christ because he is God's revelation of himself to us. And so to do any kind of theology without Christ as our focus, it just remains mere guesswork. So what we want to do in our series is to look at the attributes of God, see how they relate to the person of Jesus Christ, and to see how they are of practical importance, both in our Christian living and in our approach to God. So there will be times when we will have to dig a little bit deeper and work a little bit harder than usual. But our hope is that when we get to Christmas, we won't have swollen heads, but we will have minds and hearts that are overflowing with praise and thankfulness. And so let's begin our series with episode one, talking about the Trinity. And for this episode, this sermon, I want to see two big things. Firstly, that the God of the Bible is Trinitarian, one God in three persons. And secondly, having a Trinitarian God is not only just essential to the Christian faith, but is also very good news for all of us. Now, in order to unpack all of this, I want us to walk through a series of questions which you will see on your sheets, just on your chairs. Starting with the first one. Is a Trinitarian view of God biblical? That's the first question on your handouts. Is a Trinitarian view of God biblical? Many of you in this room might think, that's an obvious question. Are you wasting a lot of paper space by putting that on there? But may I submit to you all, it's worth saying right from the very beginning that every now and then, there are words that we have in the Christian circle which act like jargon. We use them unthinkingly. And every now and again, we realize that they are not actually in the Bible. They are words that the church has used over centuries to describe a certain doctrine, which is visible in the Bible, but is not articulated in that specific way. So one classic example would be the incarnation of Jesus. Now, you will be hard pressed 
to find Bible-believing Christians who do not believe in the incarnation of Jesus. You'll be hard-pressed to find Christians who don't believe that Jesus became a man. But the word incarnation isn't actually in the Bible. And the same is true for the Trinity. We never have it spelled out in the Bible that God is three persons and at the same time is one being. And for that reason, the Trinity is often disputed, particularly amongst more liberal circles. You know, they would say things like, it's not made explicit in the Bible, and so it's only there through our own lenses of interpretation. And therefore we should be suspicious of talking about God as Trinity. And yet, in this sermon series, and in other ones like it, presenting God as Trinity is put absolutely front and centre. In fact, I suggest to you, I would go as far as to say that if we don't have Trinity, then our religion that we claim to follow won't actually be Christianity at all. It might be monotheism, which is the idea that there is one and only one God, but the thing that sets Christianity apart from the outset is not monotheism on its own. It's Trinitarian monotheism. That there is one God in three persons. So is a Trinitarian view of God biblical? Well, it won't surprise you. I and Hollywell Church in general will say, yes, it is. It might not be explicitly mentioned, but it is implicit throughout the whole of Scripture, starting, in fact, with the opening verses of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. What we see is the Trinity at work in creation. Listen to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said... Let there be light. And there was light. And so in these opening verses, we have God the Father, we have the Word of God speaking, and we also have God the Spirit. And so firstly, the Trinity can be seen in creation. Secondly, we can see the evidence of the Trinity in Jesus' own life. One example would be at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, which was read to us early in the service, where we see Jesus being baptised. Here there is a voice from heaven, God the Father, and we hear him affirming his own Son. And we see the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so this Trinitarian model, and it it follows Jesus. It's a pattern that we see throughout Jesus' whole life and ministry. His obedience to the Father and being empowered by the Spirit. The whole of Jesus' life is Trinitarian. He is the Son, doing the work of the Father by the work of the Spirit in his life. And so secondly, we see the Trinity evidenced throughout the whole of Jesus' life, and we'll see a bit more of that later on. But thirdly, the Trinity is seen in the acknowledgement of divinity in Scripture. What do I mean by that? This simply means that all three persons are referred to in the Bible as God. The Bible refers to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as being divine. Examples of this would include Romans 15, 
it says we are to glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 20, God the Son brought the church with his own blood. And earlier on in Acts, Acts chapter 5, where we see the story of Ananias and Sapphira, they are accused of lying to the Holy Spirit, who is God. And of course, those are just a few short examples, and we could go on and on and on. But the Bible consistently gives a picture of Father, Son, and Spirit as being divine, and acting harmoniously from one will. At this point, you might be wondering, Tim, that's all well and good, but what does the Bible actually mean by saying that God is Trinity? So that's the second question on our handouts tonight. What does it mean to say that God is three in one? Well, let's be honest, it is a conundrum which goes beyond our comprehension. As humans, we tend to, we tend to think that one being means one person and therefore one will. And yet God is one being with one will but three persons. It's hard to get your head around, isn't it? It's difficult. And there's no real analogy or metaphor that really does it justice. That's why the Trinity is hard to preach on or to explain properly to someone because it defies explanation and illustration. You might have heard of the illustration of the three states of water. Or you might have heard of an illustration that talks about the egg with a shell and a white and a yolk. But those analogies, they break down very quickly and they fall apart. A better way for us to understand, may I suggest, a better way for us to understand the Trinity is to think of it in terms of what we would call the essence of God and the persons of God. We're going to have to work a little bit at this one, but please stay with me. So, the three persons of the Trinity, they are of the same essence. That means that the Father, Son and Spirit, they do not share their essence or divide their being or operate in three different modes, but that they are one in the same in what they are. And the conclusion of that for us is that whatever we say about the essence of the Father must also be true about the Son and also about the Spirit. And so when it comes to the attributes of God, the things that we are looking at over the next few weeks, we must say that whatever God the Father is, so too is the Son and the Spirit because they are the same essence. And that's why we can start with the Son, because he is intelligible to us. And so through him, we can also know the Father. And at this point, you might be thinking, isn't that just being very pragmatic? Why does this matter? This is why it matters, brothers and sisters at Hollywell. This is why it matters, because if we were to say that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are God, and yet are of different essences then we would also have to say logically that we are no longer monotheistic. It would mean a saying basically that we worship three different gods made up of three different essences and therefore operate within three different wills. And yet, may I suggest, we sometimes think of God like this. 
Consider these statements. God the Father, he is angry and judgmental. But God the Son, well, he's lovely. He's compassionate. He's caring. And God the Spirit, well, he's magical and emotional. My friends, we often associate the traits, these traits, with those different persons of the Trinity. But we shouldn't. Jesus, the Son, hates sin every bit as much as God the Father. Because, again, they are the same essence. The Father loves to forgive just as much as the Son does. Because, again, they are the same essence. Their character and their will are not only identical, they are the same. And it's really important that we understand this if we call ourselves Christians here tonight because it does make an actual difference to how we pray and how we approach God. When we come to God in prayer, we don't sit in the shadows behind our kind big brother Jesus, hoping that he is going to somehow twist the father's arm and convince his mean dad not to punish us. No. God the Father is loving and is ready to forgive and he is kind just as much as Jesus is because they are one essence. But then we move on to the persons in which we must affirm the three. Why so? Because there are certain things which the different persons of the Trinity do or do not do such as the incarnation. The Father begets the Son, not the other way around. The Spirit proceeds from the Son, not the other way around. And so, although there is no distinction in essence, there is a distinction in the persons. And to help us summarize all of this, we're going to have a little bit of help from our old friend, Athanasius. And if you don't know who Athanasius is, he is a very important in church history. He was really important in when the early church was getting formed just a few centuries after Jesus left this earth and went into heaven. Listen to what Athanasius says. Firstly, we affirm that there is one divine essence in three divine persons. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. So we believe as well that the three persons are God, but they are not three different gods. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one. And secondly, we affirm that these three persons, though distinct, are co-equal and co-eternal. In other words, there is no hierarchy. One doesn't outrank or outdate another. And in this trinity, none is before or after another. None is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, so that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in trinity and the trinity in unity is to be worshipped. Well, let's now ask the third question on our handouts. How then is the Trinity made visible 
within the life of Jesus. And this is where we're going to be looking a little bit more at Mark chapter 1. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn to that. As I said earlier, we see the one essence of the Trinity being worked in the three persons of the Trinity during the life of Jesus. And there are lots of passages that we could go to, but in particular, the opening verses of Mark's Gospel are really helpful for us. uh, Because we see the divinity of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit acting in one will, but operating in three persons. So how does Mark open? Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 1. Well, Mark presents it as the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so immediately from chapter 1, verse 1 of Mark's gospel, what we have is a father-son relationship occurring. And it's just a few verses later in where the Holy Spirit is mentioned as well. We see him proceeding from the Son in verse 8 concerning how Christians will be baptised. So already we are getting hints at the very beginning that there's three divine persons that are acting within the same will. And that continues into the baptism of Jesus. Have a look at verses 10 and 11. The son, he hears the words of his father and he receives a special anointing of the Holy Spirit. And that is followed by the temptation or the testing of Jesus in the wilderness. The son, you know, he is thrust into the wilderness by the will of the Father and by the sending of the Holy Spirit. We need to be clear here, these events, they are not against the will of the son, obviously. But when he is in the wilderness, what we see is Jesus committing himself to believing the words of his father. And this is the pattern that continues all the way through all of the Gospels, all the way through to Calvary where Jesus is crucified. The Son of God, he offers himself up by the Spirit of God to God the Father. And so we can say with confidence that the whole of Christ's life on earth was a revelation of the Trinitarian workings of God. But does this matter? Is this just Eiffel Tower thinking? Sorry, that should be Ivory Tower, sorry. Anyway, I've been up the Eiffel Tower, I think the Shard is better. But in any event, does this matter? Does it make a difference whatsoever if we don't believe in the Trinity? What do we lose if we lose the Trinity? Or to put it simply, why should I care about the Trinity? We're on the last question of our handouts tonight. Why should I care about the Trinity? Well, as I said earlier, without exaggeration, I really think that the distinctness of the Christian faith is at stake if we get rid of the Trinity. And here are my reasons why. Firstly, I want us to see that if we don't have a Trinitarian God, then we don't have a loving God. I said earlier that there are other monotheistic religions out there, other religions which believe in only having one God. But you have to ask the question, don't you? Without the Trinity, what is that God really like? In the words of Mike Reeves, a contemporary Christian author and lecturer, listen to what he says. The problem with single-person gods is that having spent eternity alone, 
wouldn't the existence of the universe full of dependent beings be a distraction for a God whose greatest pleasure has always been looking in the mirror? A God like that is not loving. A God like that is self-centered, self-gratifying and potentially quite a needy God dependent on its creation for fulfillment. And a needy God is a is, is contradiction in terms. But that is not the God of the Bible. But everything changes. Everything changes when it comes to the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Because here is a God who is not essentially lonely, but who has been loving for all eternity. As the Father has loved the Son in the Spirit, so loving us, including us, is not a strange or a novel thing for this God at all. It is at the root of who he really is. And so, essentially, without the Trinity, we don't have a loving God. But the good news is, because we have a Trinitarian God, we have a loving God. Secondly, a God that is not Trinitarian is unknowable. If God is incomprehensible, which if you think about it, any God should be, then there is no way to know this kind of God. But with a Trinitarian God, that all changes. We know God through the revelation of his Son and the indwelling of his Spirit. At the centre of the Godhead, there is a familial relationship. Our definition of God is built on the Son who reveals him. Jesus is the only way to God. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. And nobody comes to God. Nobody can come to the Father or know the Father except through Jesus the Son. And so this is why we need to be maintaining not just the person of Christ, but the divinity of Christ, the deity of Christ. It's essential. And this was one of the most major battlegrounds of the early church. Because they were asking questions like this. Was the Son of God really divine, or was he something else? You know, did, did being a son mean that he was somehow less than God? Was he part divine, or a mirage, or a mixture, or something like that? And these debates, they took centuries to sort out and to clear up. But at the bottom of it was this issue. Without the Son revealing the Father, we have no hope of ever really knowing God. We are left distant. God is up in heaven looking down in pity and we are looking up in ignorance. But when God the Word became flesh, as was read earlier in John chapter 1, and made his dwelling amongst us, all of that changed. Here's what Thomas Watson wrote. Thomas Watson was a church leader during the 17th century. Listen to what he writes here. Christ clothed himself in our flesh that the divine nature might be more pleasing to us. The human nature of Christ is a glass through which we might see the love and wisdom and glory of God clearly represented to us. Through the lantern of Christ's humanity, we behold the light of God. Christ being incarnate makes the sight of God not formidable, but a delight to us. 
And so, without the Trinity, we cannot know God. But because of the Trinity, God can be known. Isn't that good news? Number three, the Trinity makes a difference to our salvation. Without the Trinity, we cannot be saved. Now, let me try and explain it like this. Like many of you, sometimes we like to do food shopping as a family online, uh, whether that's through Tesco or somewhere else, and that's become really important during the COVID pandemic. And you know how it works. You do the order on your phone or on the computer, however you choose to do it, and and next thing you know, you hear a big engine coming down the road. It's a big van, big lorry. You think you've got everything that you've ordered. The man comes down and he comes in his overalls and he's coming, coming, coming. He knocks on the door. You answer it. He doesn't even say hello. But all he says is, there are a few substitutes with your order. We've all been there, haven't we? But here's the thing. Most of the time, it's all right. It's a pass. The substitutes, you know, they are basically the same things, but just in different packaging. But in other times, you're left scratching your head and kicking the door. Because you're just wondering, what kind of algorithms have Tesco used here? If I've ordered an extra large pack of streaky bacon and you've given me carrot sticks. Oh, the pain. That is no way a suitable substitute hashtag terrible Tesco. Here is the point. It is absolutely essential to our salvation that the Son of God dying on the cross is fully human so that he can act as our substitute and have union with us, a true substitute in absolute human likeness. But... On the flip side of the coin, it is also essential that Jesus is fully divine so that his death satisfies the punishment of our sin. Without a divine Christ, what do we have? We have a model, an example, a brave hero perhaps, but certainly not a saviour who can set us free from death. And so can you see why the Trinity is essential to our salvation? But it's also very good news. Fourthly and finally, the Trinity makes a difference to our adoptions as sons and daughters. When the Spirit rested upon the Son of Jesus, you know, when he was baptized in Mark chapter 1, Jesus, you know, he heard the voice of his Father declaring from heaven, You are my Son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. But here is the news, here is the good news. As believers, Christian believers, trusting in Jesus Christ, that same spirit of sonship now rests on us. The same words from God the Father that he spoke to his Son also apply to us. In Christ, my high priest, I am adopted. I am adopted, beloved, and spirit-anointed son or daughter, and I belong to his family. And so can you see just how essential the Trinity is to our Christian faith? But it's also very, very good news. It's not just essential, although it definitely is. It is also amazing news. It's the Trinity that enables us to know God, 
not just know about him, but know him personally and relationally. Know him as our Father in heaven. The reason we can do a series on the Lord's Prayer in the morning and say, Our Father in heaven, say, Abba, Father, is because God is Trinity. We are adopted. That is so good news to be, to know a Trinitarian God. We can know about him, but we can know him personally. We can call him Abba Father, just as Jesus does. And we can be part of his family and experience his loving kindness in our lives day after day. But that's not all. That's not all. Because, because God is Trinity and because we, you and I in this room, are made in the image of our triune God, we are able to know one another. And we're able to love one another and fully appreciate the diversity of everyone God has made without compromising on equality. Equality and diversity is such a massive issue that our society has been facing recent years. The Trinity not only has an answer, but it has the best possible answer to that. Because we are made in the image of our triune God, we can fully appreciate everyone for who they are, without limits. Isn't that so awesome? Isn't our God utterly beautiful? The good news of the Trinity is precisely what makes God so beautiful. And when we find God beautiful, we turn to worship. Here's Mike Reeves again. The triunity of God is the secret of his beauty. If we deny this, we at once have a God without radiance, without joy, and without humor. A God without beauty. So although the Trinity might be, on the one hand, incomprehensible to us, but on the other hand, it is utterly satisfying to our souls. It should cause us to rejoice that we don't have a distant, unloving, unknowable God, but the God who saves us through his own Trinitarian work. This should be all the fuel for worship that we will ever need. That God is loving and gracious and merciful, and that through his will we can know him and love him and enjoy him and worship him forever as his own adopted children. One more quote as we close, this time from Gregory of Nazianzus, who helped Christians shape their understanding of the Trinity during the fourth century. You can just call him old Greg. Listen to what he writes. Here's old Greg. No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them then I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole, and my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am thinking escapes me. Our God is Trinitarian. It's not just essential, but there's also very good news. It's what makes our God so beautiful and worthy of worship. And so with that, let's turn to prayer and we will respond in sung worship.